Here's what it says. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but we are but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we, in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned in the uh, announcements, we are moving to a new space in a couple of weeks, and uh, as soon as we move, uh, here's what I'm planning to do. I'm going to probably do about a two-month series, and we're going to talk about vision. And we're going to talk about uh, where we think or where we believe that God is leading us, uh, Good News Church, this particular community in the next season uh, of the life of the church. And uh, I, I'm actually not going to be preaching the next two Sundays. So uh, believe it or not, this is the last time I'm preaching here at Good Shepherd. Uh, Fred is going to preach next week. And uh, uh, I was going to make it a surprise, but uh, I asked Pastor John to preach uh, the final week. So I thought it would be fitting that he preaches the, the last message here as we meet in this space. But uh, <clears throat> uh, because of that, you know, today we are planning to kind of have this like little meeting where we want to talk about some of the logistics and just kind of envision and think about uh, the possibilities of what we can do as a community uh, in this new space and as we move. But I realize that uh, before we do that, it might be helpful to at least uh, introduce what uh, we're thinking in terms of vision, uh, to introduce... Uh, where we think uh, God is leading us and where uh, we want to be as a church. And so uh, that's kind of what I want to do today, uh, just kind of briefly. Today, what I want to do is I want to paint a picture uh, of our vision. And uh, I, don't, I don't want to give you a statement uh, yet. That, that'll come. Uh, I don't want to talk about concrete details yet. That'll come. But I want to start with a picture. I want to paint a picture, and uh, the reason I want to do that is because I think a lot of times pictures can be very powerful. Pictures can often say things uh, and stay in our heads more so than just a simple sentence. Uh, pictures are something that I think that can stir our imaginations as we visualize and, and picture things that could potentially happen. And uh, what I want us to do today is, uh, or what I hope for us, is that uh, this picture is something that can really stir our imagination and that we can envision and imagine what God is able to do uh, in the future through this particular church and this particular congregation. And so as we have been praying uh, for uh, a while now about where God wants us to go, one of the things I've been doing is I've been thinking about people. I've been thinking about people. 
think about it. Everyone has his or her own story. Every one of you has his or her own story. Uh, some people are transplants and are not from New York, and some people come here in order to start a job or to go to a school. Uh, some po- people are here because they, they want to experience life in New York before they or quote-unquote settle down. Some people are here simply by default because the particular industry that they work in, uh, there, there are no other jobs outside of New York maybe. And so you know, when you think about uh, the stories of people who have lived in New York, uh, there, there's a lot of them. And that's just the transplants. But think about the people who have lived in New York for a long time. You know, for some, New York City is a city that has changed so rapidly over the years. Uh, you talk to people who uh, live in certain neighborhoods, and they they're being priced out of their neighborhoods because everything is getting so expensive, and uh, you know they're they're a little bit frustrated because they've invested so much into their neighborhoods and into their communities and the life of their communities, and now they can't enjoy the investment that they put into these communities because they simply can't afford it anymore. Uh, New York is just rapidly changing. You know, others uh, may not be from New York, but you still have lived here for a long time, maybe five, ten, maybe even fifteen years. And uh, you've been in New York for so long that you've seen all of your friends move away. And uh, that's part of the difficulty of living in New York. It's very transient. And so you build a community, and then uh, slowly, uh, you know, one by one, people begin to move away to somewhere that's uh, easier to live and more affordable. And, of course, that's not a bad thing. Uh, but it does maybe make us feel a little bit like we're being left behind. Uh, we're left being left behind in New York. And there is this desire that we want to plant roots somewhere. We want to be rooted in something, in some kind of community. And uh, the difficult realization is that New York is a hard place to plant roots because the soil is always shifting. And so uh, you have many, many stories of loneliness or a lot of stories of disconnectedness. Then you think about the greater society and what's going on not only in our nation but in the world. And uh, the, the word that comes to my mind is the word fracturing, okay, fracturing. You, you have these deep political divisions, you have these deep racial divisions, you have these deep divisions between the rich and the poor, and sometimes it feels like these gaps are so big and so wide that there is no possible way that these gaps will ever be closed or be filled. And then I begin to think about the Christian community, and I think generationally in America, young people, right, the so-called millennials, they are... Uh, they are disassociating with not just Christianity, but any kind of religion in general. And so they've, uh, they have this nickname called the religious nuns. Because uh, when you fill out the census and you identify what religion you are, they'll check the box, none. And, you know, that's not an entirely bad thing because maybe it means that uh, previously Christians who were nominal Christians are, are kind of fading away. But maybe it's also telling us that the Christian faith is becoming more and more irrelevant to younger generations, at least in their eyes. And there is this growing gap between older generations and younger generations, even with respect to faith. And uh, if you are part of an older generation, then it, it's so easy to look down upon them and say, you know, they kind of need to get their act together. Uh, but maybe uh, it's, it's a lack of uh, discipleship from older generations, and maybe that's something that older generations have to be accountable for. Perhaps we haven't spent enough time thinking about the next generation and praying for their faith. Then I think about the state of churches in America. And a lot of churches are divided too, aren't they? Uh, A lot of American Christianity has been shaped by these consumer values. And rather than emphasizing what makes us united and emphasizing what makes us similar, uh, we want to emphasize what makes us different and what makes us distinct. Churches, ministries, and even preachers care more about building platforms to build up their own name and to lift up their own quote-unquote brand rather than lifting up the name 
of Christ. And it's not only church leaders who have turned Christianity into kind of like this brand, but a lot of Christians, a lot of our friends, uh, when you look at church, uh, how do you view church? It's what, what service can you give me? Uh, how can you meet my needs? And once a church fails to provide a certain service, then guess what? It's time to leave and time to move on to a new one. And what happens is the numbers game becomes a, a crucial thing, and church becomes all about number and attendance. Uh, the, the number one question I get when I meet somebody and I, people, I say, oh, I'm a pastor, the number one question I get is, oh, how many people go to your church? And I, I think that naturally leads to maybe the spirit of competition amongst churches because I guess we're competing for the marketplace, right? We're competing for attendance. We're competing for numbers. And uh, we want our church to grow and we want more numbers. And uh, that might mean that other churches have less numbers, but that's the name of the game in church ministry. I'm being a little bit cynical here, I know. But I do think there is a spirit of competition sometimes and uh, a spirit of division, a spirit of suspicion, rather than a spirit of unity and a spirit of partnership. Now, let me also just say, I think, I think New York is actually better than other places. And at least my experience in New York is that uh, a lot of churches, a lot of pastors, and a lot of ministries uh, want to pursue unity and want to form partnerships. And I, I think that that takes place in New York because... Uh, ministry in New York is so difficult and such a struggle. And so when everybody's struggling, uh, you, you kind of just want to uh, <clears throat> work with other people. These are all the things I think about, right, as we're praying, as I'm thinking about vision, as I think about all of these different narratives. You know, the one picture that comes to mind and the one thing I think we need to start doing is uh, we need to start building bridges, okay? That's the picture I want you to have, a picture of a bridge, we need to connect all of these stories, all of these stories that people have in New York, regardless of what story it is, we have to connect it to God's story of redemption. We have to connect people to one another through love and through unity. We need to build bridges. Bridges. I think that's what God wants us to do. I think that's what God is calling us to do, build bridges. Uh, think about a physical bridge just for a minute. And uh, some of us live in Manhattan. Some of us don't live in Manhattan. Uh, Manhattan is an island, and uh, there's water that surrounds right every side of Manhattan. And if you want to get to another borough, if you want to get to another part place outside of Manhattan, you know what you need? You need bridges. And so we have all of these bridges around Manhattan, bridges that help us get to places like Queens, bridges that help us get to places like Williamsburg, Long Island, Bronx, Staten Island, New Jersey. And uh, if we didn't have these bridges, and I'll include tunnels in there, if we didn't have these connectors, what would New York look like? Right? What would New York look like? New York would look drastically different if there was nothing to connect all of these things, right? Bridges are a vital part of the city. Bridges are a vital part of the life of the city. But at the same time, nobody really thinks about bridges until they break. Uh, nobody thinks about how important they are to the life of the city until uh, it begins to become an inconvenience. Most bridges, I guess outside of the Brooklyn Bridge, are not an attraction in and of themselves. They're, they just have a job to do, right? They just have a job to do. There's no glory to these bridges, but they're part of such an important infrastructure that connects neighborhoods and boroughs and people to one another. I think we're called to build bridges. I think the temptation in our culture is we want to build platforms instead of bridges. Uh, we want to build platforms that... Uh, attract glory for ourselves, that make a name for ourselves. Uh, building bridges is not the easiest thing to do because there's no glory in building a bridge or being a bridge. 
you know, we do this individually. And I, I would say because of technology, we're more uh, equipped to build platforms for ourselves than ever before. Uh, we want to build our resumes. We care about our external ex uh, appearance. We care about our status, our respectability, our name, whether it's individually or whether it's as a church. But gospel ministry is not about building our own platforms. I think it's about building bridges for the glory of God. We're going to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And before we look at it, uh, I do want you to be aware and to know that this is actually part of a wider argument uh, that starts in chapter 3. And Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and there are a lot of things that are broken with his relationship with the Corinthian church. Uh, this church was a church that questioned the authenticity of Paul's ministry because he did things like he refused to receive payments for his speaking. Uh, he decided to work as a tent maker. Uh, he didn't use the ancient rhetorical techniques to win an argument. And maybe these are not reasons that we can relate to particularly, but they are basically concerned with Paul's credibility as a preacher. Any credible speaker would have been paid. Any credible speaker would have used rhetoric to persuade people of their arguments. And Paul's not doing any of those things. And on a personal uh, level, Paul, uh, he was supposed to visit them, but then he changed his plans. And they said, if you are truly a man of God, then you wouldn't have changed your plans. Uh, he also experienced a lot of suffering in his life. And they said things like, if you were truly a man of God, then you wouldn't have experienced so much suffering in your life. And so Paul, he has to kind of defend his ministry before this church. And this is what he's doing uh, in this section in the book of 2 Corinthians. But as he makes his defense for his ministry, uh, we get to learn a lot about the nature of gospel ministry. And for me, at least, this is personally one of the most uh, richest sections of Scripture. What we're going to look at today in this passage is uh, we're going to look at a theme of reconciliation. Okay, reconciliation. Now let me just reread a few of the verses starting at verse 18. And he says this, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now just look at that last phrase and the force of that verb. He's saying, we implore you, we implore you, be reconciled to God. That there's such an urgency there that Paul is essentially begging them, saying, please, right, be reconciled to God. Because your relationship right now with God is broken. Right? It's one that's characterized by hostility. But God wants it to be characterized by peace, by friendship, by unity. If you were here on Christmas, I mentioned this, uh, but in the New York Times, this was about two or three years ago, there was this piece called Portraits of Reconciliation. And if you Google it, you should, you should check it out, but it's a, it's a really powerful thing. And uh, this, uh, this piece was basically a photographer went out to Rwanda uh, nearly, I think about 20 years after the Rwandan genocide. And think about it, nearly a million people were killed in the Rwandan genocide. And... Uh, in Rwanda, there is this nonprofit organization, and one of the things that they're trying to do is they're trying to promote reconciliation between the two groups of people, the Hutus and the Tutsis. And uh, they, they're basically working one person at a time to try to encourage reconciliation between these groups. 
And it, when you look at this, uh, these portraits and these pictures, upon first glance, uh, they're not really amazing. Right? They're just basically a picture of two people standing next to each other. But then you begin to read about the context of this relationship and uh, the things that both of these people did or experienced, and these pictures become uh, amazing, powerful portraits of something that is, um, maybe I dare I say, miraculous. You know, if you think about some of the things that took place during the Rwandan genocide, it's it's hard to imagine reconciliation taking place. You know, homes were destroyed, lives were destroyed, people were killed, children were killed, and uh, it's hard to imagine uh, somebody who did these things actually standing in the same photograph with the person that they did it with. But that's what these portraits are showing. And so you look at these portraits and there's one person and they have their hand on the back of the other person and you go, okay, it's just a picture of two people and then you read the caption below and this is what it says. The perpetrator would say, my conscience was not quiet and when I would see her, I was very ashamed. After being trained about unity and reconciliation, I went to her house and asked for forgiveness. Then I shook her hand. So far, we are on good terms. Well, what did he do? Here's what the victim says. He killed my father and three brothers. He did these killings with other people, but he came alone and asked for pardon. He and a group of other offenders who had been in prison helped me build a house with a covered roof. I was afraid of him. Now I have granted him pardon. Things have become normal. And in my mind, I feel clear. In this picture, she, she has her arm around him. Amazing. A man who killed her father and three brothers. Here's what you don't see in the photographs, though. You don't see anybody from the nonprofit organization who was promoting reconciliation and allowed for this to happen. Uh, you don't see them in the picture. You don't see them in the photograph. They're, they're the invisible people who did much of the work in order to uh, make this rec relationship reconciled. And I think that's what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthian church about his ministry. His ministry is not about outward appearances. His ministry is not about glorying in himself. He is not looking for letters of recommendation for anybody to write to him to commend his ministry. He has been given this ministry of reconciliation by the mercy of God. And through the preaching of the gospel, what he's trying to do is he's trying to break down walls of hostility and build bridges to the living God. That's what he's trying to do. The motivation for his ministry, it's not about fulfilling some religious duty. It's not about building a platform for himself. What then is his motivation? And you see it in verses 14 to 15. He says this, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is Paul's motivation. It's the gospel. It's the message of reconciliation. It's the love of Christ demonstrated through the sacrificial death upon a cross. And having known that love, he says in very strong terms, that love controls him. He can no longer live for himself, but now he must live for him who, was, who died and was raised. If you, about, if you think about the effect that our sin has, uh, one of the ways that we can look at sin is sin always divides. It always divides. It divides us from our Creator. It divides us from one another. It divides people, groups from one another. It even divides churches from working with one another. And therefore, what we're left with because of sin is dysfunction, destruction, and hostility. 
God, he has the power to bring people together through reconciliation. And how does that happen? You know, in these uh, portraits of reconciliation in Rwanda, uh, reconciliation happened like this. The offender felt bad, the offender felt guilty, the offender felt ashamed, and they sought forgiveness. And the person who was uh, victimized offered forgiveness and gave it to them. And that's how reconciliation often happens in human relationships. But you know, reconciliation happens a little bit differently when it comes to God. Because even though God is the one who was offended, he is also the one who initiates reconciliation. He's the one who starts it. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And later Paul says, be reconciled to God. Uh, Let me be a little bit technical because uh, I think it's important for the meaning here. But be reconciled to God. In the Greek, that's a passive voice construction. That means that something outside of you is doing the action or doing the acting. Uh, Or to put it another way, He's saying, allow God to reconcile you and bring you back to himself. God is the one who ultimately does the work of reconciliation. Salvation and forgiveness are things that are a gift initiated by God, given by God to us. And therefore, what we are called to do is we are called to simply receive it. We're called to receive it. But what does that really look like? What does it look like to receive the grace of God? What does it look like to receive the reconciliation of God? You know what I find interesting about a passage like this? If you read it not knowing the historical context, you would think that Paul is actually talking to non-believers, that he's actually evangelizing to people who've never heard the gospel before, right? But he's not, he's not addressing this letter to them. He's addressing it to a church. He's addressing it to the Corinthian church. And Paul is basically saying this, that Uh, Even though you are a part of a church, you haven't been reconciled to God yet because your relationship with other people is so dysfunctional and so broken. There should be greater unity. There should be greater peace in your relationships, but there isn't because you need to be reconciled to God first. He's telling this to the church. Be reconciled to God. Of course, I think, I think that's a point reflecting on, especially if your relationships are broken. But that's not where I want to take the message today. Here's where I want to take this message. I want you to think about what Christ did. I want you to think about how he made reconciliation possible. Or to put it another way, I want you to think about how Christ was able to build a bridge. Or perhaps more accurately, how Christ himself was the bridge. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ is a bridge between the old and the new. The old life, the life of sin, the life of death, and the new life. Christ is that bridge. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Christ is the bridge from sin and guilt and shame to righteousness and holiness. Christ is the one who makes a way to God and he paves that way through his blood. Through his blood. He makes that way so that there would be a bridge so that we could be reconciled with God. In view of this, how how does Paul understand his ministry 
Well, he calls himself an ambassador for Christ. He says God is making his appeal through him. In 6.1 he says, Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Paul understood that he has been given this ministry, this ministry of reconciliation. Or to put it another way, I think Paul understood that he was called to build bridges. And the only reason and the only way that he could build bridges is because the foundational bridge has already been built. That Christ is already the foundation. Uh, Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul sees himself as a skilled master builder. He sees himself as uh, playing a role or a part in the building of uh, a building. Uh, He saw himself as one who built these bridges through his ministry of reconciliation, through his preaching of the gospel, in order to connect people's story to God's story of redemption. And through that, bring redemption and reconciliation even between groups of people. You know, as we look at the next season of uh, Good News Church, uh, I want to ask a very practical question. And uh, I think this will be the guiding question that we'll probably ask. The question is this are, are we building bridges? Are we building any bridges? What bridges are we building? If you're a member of this church, ask yourself, what bridge are you building? Now, it's not going to be the same bridge for all of us because God has gifted us in different things and therefore we are each uniquely qualified to build different kinds of bridges and other kinds of bridges we are not able to build. But we're called to build. What kind of bridges are we building? What kind of bridges is God calling us to build? No, I notice this about our church in particular. Uh, people in our church, I think, we tend to be very achievement-oriented. And therefore, if there's no visible success, or if there's no visible fruit, then oftentimes what happens is we get discouraged and we just stop. Right? We just stop trying. Uh, many of us are not like that. Many of us uh, are actually um, persevering. But needless to say, we, we still get the discouraged and we kind of say, what's the point? You know, the thing about building bridges is you can't force anybody to walk across them, right? All you can do is you simply build it. We can build a bridge by sharing the gospel. We can't make anybody walk across it and believe in the gospel. We can try to make a bridge between two people, but we can't make anybody walk across that bridge. And that's why uh, we need prayer, right? That's why our church needs to pray. That's why all of our ministries, we need to pray. Because it's not something that we have control over. But you see, if we are building bridges, if we are praying, then I think we are going to be a faithful church with what God has given us. Think about some of the stories that I mentioned uh, in the beginning of this message. Think about the stories of people in New York. Think about people you know. Think about people you interact with. Think about some of their stories. Think about the person who is new to the city and needs a place to belong. Think about the person who maybe grew up in the church but has fallen away from having this lively, vibrant, spirit-filled relationship with Christ. 
Think of the person who has never stepped foot in the church before and has no idea what Christianity and the gospel is all about. How do we build bridges to those people? Think about churches and ministries and believers who are laboring for the kingdom in isolation from one another. Think about ministries and churches that are struggling, uh, that feel weak, that need encouragement. How can we build bridges with them and encourage them? Think about college students or people who are in their early 20s and somebody who thinks you know Christianity is so irrelevant. How do we build bridges to them? Think about these missionaries who are living in these other countries, who are living with very minimal Christian fellowship in their lives. How do we build bridges to them? We need to, to build bridges. Because at the end of the day, there is one kingdom. <laughs> there is one Christ. There is one body. There is one people. And Christ himself is a bridge that connects his body and connects us with our creator, with the living God. That's the picture I want you to have, a picture of a bridge. As we think about ministry, as we think about serving New York, think about a bridge. What bridge are we building and can we build? By the way, I should also say, you know, we've already started trying to do this. Uh, you know, you know, Peter, he, uh, our elder, he met with somebody who's planning a church in Jersey City. And, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of music equipment that we don't use anymore. So uh, we're going to let this uh, church plant in Jersey City uh, use it. And we're going to try to help their ministry in that way. But uh, that could start a great partnership, right? And maybe we can pray for them and pray for their church and help them uh, as they get started and try to reach out to people. You know, we're partnering with uh, Mosaic in New Jersey with College Ministry. And, uh, you know, Mark is going to, to lead that, and we'll share a little bit about that later on at the dinner. But we're going to try to partner with them in reaching out to college students and serving the college student population. Uh, they have a handful of college students in New York, and if they continue to go to church, you know, many of them maybe attend a service without really getting plugged in and being discipled in a community. Maybe we can serve college students in that way. Maybe our community can do that. On Sundays, you know, think about uh, you know, if you have uh, been coming here for a long time, you know, I, w- I would give you permission, right? Visit another church one day by yourself, though. <laughs> Don't go with anybody else. Visit another church by yourself, and ask yourself, right? How does it feel to be the new person? And we have to create a community, an environment to build bridges to even those people. On Sundays, let's build these bridges. Right, let's build these bridges and let's be a, a people in prayer. And maybe by God's grace, people will walk over those bridges and we'll see God doing amazing work. Let me end with this. Honest question, but what if I don't want to? Right? What if I don't want to build these bridges? There's actually a word for you here as well. And you know, the passage concludes with an appeal. And Paul says, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ. He has given us grace. He has given us forgiveness. He has made us into a new creation. He has bridged the gap for us. And Paul would say, don't receive that in vain. Don't waste it. Right? That's Paul's appeal. 
Uh, if we were to continue to read this passage, Paul would say, now is the time of salvation. Now is the time of God's favor. That time is now. And if I would borrow his language, I would also say this. Now is the time where we need to build bridges. Because the Holy Spirit has come. God is at work in the life of his church. Let's pray together.